The church isn't requiring or expecting anybody uh, to do anything to change their attractions. The church is simply trying to help us all to orient our behavior uh, along God's plan for sexuality and relationship. Welcome back to the Joyful Catholic Leaders Show, where you'll hear stories and insights from those who lead with faith, from the seminary to the parish to the classroom to the office, to the sports field, and everywhere in between. Today we are delighted and honored to be joined by Father Philip Bochansky, Executive Director of Courage International, which is an apostolate for men and women with same-sex attraction and those who love them. Thank you for being here, Father. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So a little bit on Father before we get started. He served as Executive Director at Courage since 2017. For that, he was chaplain for the Courage Apostolate in the Archdiocese of his hometown of Philadelphia for five years, then was appointed to the position of associate director in Jan 2015. So I've been doing this important work for, for quite some time, uh, which is great. He's an award-winning author. He's written and edited several books, audio series, and articles on various aspects of church history, catechesis, and spirituality. And in 2019, Pope Francis awarded Father Bachansky the cross pro ecclesia et pontifice. Am I saying that Pontifice. Right? Pontifice much more eloquent than my Midwestern uh, butchering of, of that. Pontifice given in recognition of sustained and exceptional service to the church. So once again, we're honored to have him in studio here in the Twin Cities today as he was in town um, to do some work with the St. Paul Seminary's Institute for Ongoing clergy formation. Uh, spring clergy study day is what that was. So uh, we're very grateful for Father's time. He was hanging out and talking with fellow priests all day about these important issues and topics we're going to discuss, and he's been gracious enough to give us some time. So thanks again for being here. My pleasure. Okay, we're, I'm going to throw maybe a little bit of a hard-hitting one at you to start, okay? Sure. Catholic teaching on homosexuality and transgenderism is well-documented, but often misunderstood. Fair? Probably agree with that no, statement? I agree with that, for sure. Let's start with one common misconception. Can you pray the gay away? Is that possible? Well, aside from whether it's even possible, it's certainly not what the Catholic Church expects people to even try to do. Um, you know, there's really important distinctions that the Church makes in its teaching about sexual morality in general and, and homosexuality in particular. We distinguish the person who's always good because we're created in the image and likeness of God. Uh, from that person's inclinations uh, or desires or emotions and that person's actions. So the church's teaching is clear that uh, that sexual actions between people of the same sex are always immoral, always wrong, because they're always excluding complementarity, the relationship between man and woman, and they're always excluding the possibility of procreativity. However, while the church's teaching is clear on actions, the church is equally clear that to experience an attraction or a desire is not a sin, not in itself, right? We have to be responsible for not putting ourselves in situations for our desires to be stirred up. We need to make good decisions about what we do with our desires and how we feel, uh, but it's not a sin to feel a feeling. So there's not any sense in which um, the church expects or would require or obligate anybody to as the saying goes, pray the, pray the gay away, right? We don't have to become straight uh, in order to, uh, to be holy and to be a saint. Um, this, is not, this is where we are separated from, um, from evangelical Christians who would see that as a sin in itself. So, yeah, I, I think um, 
we have to start with understanding where the church is coming from on that. Um, the other thing, too, is it, it doesn't just affect people who are living with this experience themselves, but it becomes an issue for their families, too, right? right? Because, you know, we have to help parents to understand that it's not about fixing the situation with their, their child or with their family, um, but learning to love one another in the context of this experience, which affects everybody in the family so deeply. So, um, so I'm not a psychologist. I'm, it'd be a little bit out of my lane to say, you know, does therapy help a person to understand himself or herself better and have an effect on their, their feelings and attractions? I think in some cases, maybe, you know, they can head in that direction. But to, to start out uh, with that as a goal often doesn't help the person to uh, to find what they're looking for. But more importantly than that, the church isn't requiring or expecting anybody uh, to do anything to change their attractions. The church is simply trying to help us all to orient our behavior uh, along God's plan for sexuality and relationships. Sure. So you, I think you kind of did this in a sense, but how might one easily just sort of summarize the elevator pitch for Catholic Church teaching on homosexuality and articulate it to somebody who, who isn't familiar with this teaching. Well, it goes back to um, God, the way that God creates us, right? Genesis 1.27, God creates us in his image and according to his likeness and male and female. And so to be in the image of God means we're made for relationship. To be in the likeness of God means our relationships have to be based on a sincere gift of self, a total gift of self. Uh, and then in the same breath that the scripture reveals that we're made for loving relationships, it reveals that we're male and female, which means everything about our sexuality, our bodies, what we can do with our bodies, our desires and attractions, relationships, uh, and intimate actions, all of that is evaluated based on, is this leading me to live out my primary vocation, which is to make a sincere gift of myself uh, in a loving relationship? So when a relationship is based on uh, that truth from the scripture that we're male and female, so complementarity, um, and that because we're male and female, we can follow God's very first commandment to human beings, which is be fruitful and multiply, that the love which God blesses between a man and woman is intended to be fruitful. Then we realize that, well, it's intended to be fruitful because that love is supposed to be a, an image of God's love, which is permanent and faithful. Well, then we have the, the context for um, God's plan or purpose for sexual intimacy. And it's holy and good and fulfilling when it's in the context of a permanent faithful relationship, marriage, between a, a, where, where the two people are complementary in nature, man and woman, and their relations are open to having children. Okay? Uh, whenever the church has to say that a particular action or relationship or desire is immoral or, or not what God wants, it's applying that set of criteria, right? So adultery, fornication, pornography, masturbation, contraception, they're all wrong for the same reason, which is that some part of that plan, permanence, faithfulness, complementary procreativity, is missing. And when you take something out of that plan, then it has a serious impact on the spiritual life and the relationship of the people involved. Okay, so where does the church's teaching on homosexuality come from? Same place. Because sexual relations between people of the same sex uh, are always, they're, they're not complementary. The two people have the same, same bodily and sexual nature, and they can't by their nature be procreative. That when those things are missing, 
people certainly love one another, they certainly have affection and care for one another, but to make that into a sexual relationship is not going to get them where they want to go because we perceive and believe that that complementary procreativity really have to be part of a sexual relationship for it to be fulfilling and holy in God's plan. Absolutely. So good. Thanks for breaking that down. So that's sort of the the macro, here's where it all comes from, and yet we know that this is a very real human struggle that yeah, people sure. go through, right? Um, if there was someone listening right now and that's experiencing same-sex attraction and, and struggling to reconcile that with Catholicism, what do you want them to know right now in, the, in that moment, in I, that space? I think in? first and foremost that they are absolutely welcome in the heart of the church, right? Um, we look at the example of Jesus in John chapter 6. I, everyone, I, I'm trying to remember how it starts now. Um, I will not reject anyone who comes to me, Jesus says. Uh, everyone that the Father comes to draws I, will come to me. I will not reject anyone who comes to me. His welcome to us is absolute. And then he says, but you come to me because you've learned from my Father. Anyone who learns from, learns from my Father and listens to him comes to me. So the, the, the welcome that the church provides is, has a purpose to it. You are absolutely welcome. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be ashamed. Please come. The church is waiting for you. And we want to welcome you because we have some big things to talk about. We want to know who you are. I want to hear your story. And then, you know, when we can understand your story, then we can understand it in the context of the bigger story that God writes for all of us in our vocation and our body, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, come close because we have something important to talk about. And, you know, it's not just. We're not waiting to like give you a set of instructions for you to go home and read and then come back when you've got it all figured out. You know, we, wanna, right. we, we, we love you enough to meet you where you are. Yeah. We love you too much to leave you where you are, right? If oh. where, you need to, where you ought to be is closer to God's plan for you. Um, but we do we want to walk that way together, right? And, and we really want to welcome and accompany uh, every person in the name of the Lord. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read a couple excerpts from the Catechism and its section on this particular topic and just have you sort of interpret it for the layperson, okay? So this is from Catechism of the Catholic Church 2357. Homosexuality has taken a great variety of forms through the centuries and in different cultures. Its psychological genesis remains largely unexplained. Many people with same-sex attraction will say, I feel like I was born this way. What gives there? Well, I think... First of all, we, we have to understand that plan that we've just been talking about and say that if that's really what we believe God has in mind for human beings, then God wouldn't create human beings with a, an overwhelming desire that's opposite to what he wants, right? Either he'd be contradicting his own will or he'd be setting us up to fail, and neither of those things is true of God. So this experience of, of attraction to the same sex can be very, uh, can be, be, you know, feel like the central part of a person's life. It's certainly not the only important thing about them, right? Um, but certainly as we're coming to understand ourselves, coming to understand sexuality and desire and attraction and romance and relationships, usually that's happening around puberty, right? Um, it's, you know, it, it can kind of take over our sense of who we are. It's easy to kind of um, start to identify ourselves, see our whole life through that lens, even to the point where we're looking back um, to things before we even kind of knew what relationships were about, before we could have expressed that, before there were any kind of sexual feelings in our life, because, you know, before puberty, we generally aren't thinking in those terms, right? Okay. You ask a 10-year-old, 
you know, are you attracted to girls? Like, ew, girls are yucky, right? right? Um, but, I mean, if, if we look back and say, well, you know, the, the kind of feelings that are part of my life now, maybe I've always felt in terms of, you know, where do I fit? Who am I? Who sees me for who I am, et cetera? Yeah. And, you know, if those things are there, then it can be easy to kind of just assume that it's always been connected with what it feels like it's connected with now, namely this experience of sexual attraction. So, you know, I think we have to say gently but but consistently, God doesn't make us to have desires that are contrary to his will for us. Um, and also, I mean, just because something feels um, very central or even very natural, you know, we because of the original sin and because of, you know, our own understanding of ourself, because of all sorts of things in our own stories, we can't always take our perceptions and emotions at face value and just assume that everything I feel must be true. You know, in all different parts of our life, we have to evaluate our feelings based on what we know about ourselves and others and our vocation. Um, so I think it's not as simple as to say, you know, I feel this now. I must have always felt like this. That means that's who I am. That's how God made me. Yeah, there's a couple leaps in there that we really can't take. Yeah, absolutely. Catechism goes on to say, Catholic tradition has always declared that homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered. They are contrary to the natural law. They close the sexual act to the gift of life. They do not proceed for a genuine, effective, and sexual complementarity. Sounds familiar, mm-hmm. uh, based on what we've just been talking about. Under no circumstances can they be approved. Why? So, again, this is the, the, the very clear expression of you know, applying God's plan for sexuality, which really is based on complementarity and procreativity to this particular experience. So those three reasons are, are all important. They're contrary to the natural law. What do we mean? We can look at creation and see the fingerprints of the creator, right? We look at how our bodies are and we understand what we are supposed to do with them and who we are as people who are in these bodies. And so, you know, the natural difference between men's bodies and women's bodies means that as sacred scripture says, I think four or five times, uh, the two can become one flesh, right? Um, Meaning that the parts of them that are different are the parts of them that allow them to give themselves completely to one another. So that as truly as we could say in this world, the two become one flesh. So people whose bodies are the same may be able to give pleasure to one another, right? May be able to, you know, um, connect their bodies in various ways, but not in the same way that the two become one flesh, that the, the, the difference between them allows them to give and receive a gift of themselves and also receive the joy and the gratification of the gift, right? So that's the first reason. Um, the second is uh, that they're close to the, to, off to the gift of life, right? Which is, I think, obvious when people of the same sex can't procreate together. That's right. um, and then the third reason, you know, those first two reasons are, are a bit biological and external. Um, the third reason says that even at the level of the heart and mind and, and spirit and, and personality, men and women are, are different. You're married, you know this better than I do, right? And those differences in the way that we communicate and prioritize and think about things and feel things, you know, those are the differences that that make a love affair thrilling and make a 50-year marriage difficult at times, right? But all of these things, all these realities, they provide a salutary challenge, right? Uh, Something to strive with. Um, And I think those things are so important because, you know, our sexuality and the, the sexual nature of our bodies and our souls um, 
it's a very central, powerful thing. And I think once we, we know what it's about and how to derive pleasure from it, there's kind of always going to be that temptation to use it selfishly, right? And either to just use my own body for gratification or, you know, be, in, be connected to somebody else but use their body for my gratification. Um, and so complementarity, both physical and emotional, um, provides, we might call it a, a, an antidote to one person's selfishness in regard mm. to sex. So the fact that they're different and that heart and mind and body move at different uh, speeds from each other and means that if they're going to, that this is going to be a big part of their life, they have to be attentive to one another, they have to be patient with one another, receptive to one another. In other words, complementarity is drawing them, hopefully, out of themselves towards the other. And then procreativity is an antidote to two-person selfishness, right? So uh, if every time they get together, they might end up res jointly responsible for another human being for 18 years or more, then it's not enough just to say, do we like each other? Are we attracted to each other? Are we quote-unquote sexually compatible? Do we want to do this? They have to say, well, are we a family? Are we ready to welcome somebody else into our family, perhaps, as a result of this gift of self to each other? Right, so chastity within marriage, you know, a big part of it is seeing sex not just as a thing we do, but as a sign of who we are as a family. And so I think what the church is saying is that, um, you know, the, that ordering of sexuality with complementary and procreativity helps, it gives us a context in which we can uh, engage in intimate, pleasurable things without it becoming a, an occasion for selfishness. And actually, where those salutary challenges draw us out of ourselves and towards the other. And I'm not saying that everybody who is engaged in intimacy with a person of the same sex is, you know, a terrible, selfish person, certainly not. But without that salutary challenge there, um, it's not, it, it can be, it's certainly imprudent, can be, you know, spiritually dangerous to, to kind of go it alone without those antidotes to selfishness. Um, you know, and, and the, the way that the church describes the teaching, when it says that it's disordered, we're not talking about a mental disorder or a, a physical disorder or disease. Um, you know, we, we perceive that there's an order, a plan, a, pa a path for um, sexuality. And when something's missing, like complementarity and or procreativity, then it's something in the order is missing. It's disordered. And it's not because of a person's intentions or circumstances, but the nature of the action because two people are of the same sex, it'll always be lacking complementary and procreativity. That's why it says intrinsically disordered. It's not language that's intended to be hurtful, um, but simply to be precise so that when we say this is the teaching, we know exactly what we mean. Absolutely. Okay, now we're on to Catechism 2358. Mm. Homosexual persons must be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. How can we achieve this in our church and in our society? What are some practical steps toward that? Well, I think for, it starts with really providing opportunities to meet and encounter and listen to one another. Um, Father John Harvey, who founded Courage uh, many years ago, used to say that our best ambassadors are our members. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, you know, the number of people who come to Courage or Encourage meetings are very private about their situation, and I certainly, you know, can't fault them for that. Um, but some of them are willing to share their story, and uh, really, you know, I think they, they can be very heroic in, in doing that, and I really admire them for that. So, 
you know, we can arrange uh, if, you know, say a priest wants to have an opportunity for adult faith formation around this topic. Um, there are some videos that, that we could provide that they can use, or we can arrange for maybe a courage member locally to come and speak at their parish, just to give people a chance to get to know somebody, ask questions, realize, you know, here's a person who, yes, is living with this experience, you know, has a story that may be simple or may be rather complex, but is striving just like all of us should be doing to hear God's word and embrace it and live it. So I think that's really where we have to start working towards respect uh, and compassion and sensitivity is get to know one another. Um, and so we should create opportunities for that. And then to develop an understanding of the church's teaching where we digest it, we understand what the the, the doctrinal language means, but we can also express that in a way people can hear it. Yeah. Um, they don't feel marginalized or looked down upon or, or forgotten about. Absolutely. Um, then Catechism 2359, homosexual persons are called to chastity. Um, how does that, they're called to that by God. Mm -hmm. So there's an implication or an ass assumption there that you're going to be happy if you live out God's call in your life. Mm -hmm. not, not making a giant leap there. How does a person with same-sex attraction living out chastity actually make that person happier? Mm -hmm. So first of all, it's, I think it's important just to make sure that all of your listeners understand what we're talking about with chastity. Yes. Because um, chastity as a virtue is different than celibacy as a lifestyle. Yep. Um, you know, as, priests, as a priest, I'm called to celibacy, which means a permanent commitment not to seek a romantic or sexual relationship, right? Not because I'm, it doesn't make me a permanent bachelor, right? When I go to um, a new doctor or dentist, if they have one of those forms and they ask for marital status, if there's room, I'll, I'll make another box and write celibate and check that one because I'm not single. I'm not waiting for somebody. I'm taken. I've given myself to the church in my ministry and my vocation. Um, so continence means not doing sexual things with somebody who's not your spouse. Celibacy means making a choice to live either as a consecrated person in a religious community or as a priest or as a person living in the world and, you know, make a conscious, intentional decision not to seek marriage. Um, but chastity means the successful integration of sexuality within the fullness of the person. In other words, I don't just evaluate my desires and feelings based on how strong they are or how real or natural they feel. I evaluate them based on who I am as a human being, as a man or a woman, as created in the image and likeness of God, someone with a vocation, right? And I only, I choose freely and it can be, I think we can be more free and intentional about it the longer we're at it, but we choose freely to only act on feelings, um, only seek relationships, only do intimate things when doing so is consistent with our vocation. So every person, including married people, are called to chastity as a way of understanding sexuality and integrating it. And I think a fully integrated person is free and can be authentic. A fully integrated person in terms of sexuality knows, you know, I, if they're married, they have this partner with whom they're exclusive and permanent. Um, if they're not married, then they're not pursuing a sexual relationship with anybody. Um, and therefore, all the other ways of loving, like friendship and affection and charity, uh, we can live those kind of relationships more freely and fully as well because we keep sexuality in, uh, in its context. So I think pursuing integration makes us happy because it sets us free, helps us to be more authentically ourselves. Absolutely. 
All right, so you've mentioned it a little bit, but what's Courage, and then what is Encourage? So Courage was founded in 1980 by Father John Harvey at the invitation of Cardinal Terence Cook. Uh, a few years earlier, a group called Dignity uh, was formed for Catholics who identified as gay or lesbian, um, but took, a, took and still does take a, a position on uh, sexual relationships um, and chastity, very different, in fact, dissenting from what the church has to say. Sure. Um, and so Cardinal Cook wanted a group to provide pastoral care for people who really wanted to hear and understand and live what the church was talking about when she called people to chastity. So Father John Harvey was an oblate of St. Francis de Sales, and he and a couple other priests in New York uh, invited people to come to an organizational meeting uh, to see what they could make of, you know, what people needed for in terms of support and encouragement. So the first meeting was end of September. Um, the members who joined from that point out, they were, as I say, people who were experiencing same-sex attractions, had heard the church's teaching about chastity and wanted to live it, but needed support to do so. So since then, we, we now have, um, I think we have chapters in about two-thirds of the dioceses of the United States and in 18 other countries, um, where they, we still uh, follow the same pattern and goals um, that the first courage group did. So. A priest chaplain or sometimes a deacon chaplain leads the meeting, leads the, the group in prayer. They read the goals that the first members put together to live chastely, develop a life of prayer, support one another by sharing their experience, form good friendships, and give good example. Then every member has a chance to check in to talk about what's been going on since we saw each other last without being interrupted. Right? And then, then we just take the rest of the time that we have for uh, discussion about maybe something that came up or the season of the year or like, you know, Lent's always a time for fruitful discussion about penance and sacrifice. And then we typically end with uh, intercessory prayer. So it's not, all, it shouldn't sound all that different from other groups that people be familiar with in their parishes for different kind of constituencies, different kinds of different people in different situations. Um, and the, the beauty of a courage group is that everybody knows going in why they're there and that everybody's striving to pursue a chaste life. And so nobody's going to be shocked if I just need to speak honestly about what's going on. Um, so courage spread pretty quickly. And when it got attention in Catholic press, uh, parents whose sons and daughters were identifying as gay or lesbian and usually weren't practicing the faith anymore, maybe had a partner, you know, um, they were calling Father Harvey to say, well, how do I keep the faith and keep my family strong and intact? So he was advising them himself. And then it got to be so many people that he was kind of asking some of them to guide some of the others. And so that became a part of our apostolate called Encourage, which is for, as I say, mostly parents, but also spouses, siblings, uh, cousins, friends of people who are usually away from the church um, because of this, their experience of attraction and their identifying as LGBT. Um, and, you know, there's often some frayed or, you know, hurt relationships. Sure. And so we give people a chance to come and talk about what they're feeling but also um, support and encourage one another. You know, so many times people say, look, I was where you are and I did everything wrong, but this is what I learned in the process. So, so courage for people who are living with this experience themselves and courage for people whose loved ones are, are living with it. Fantastic. We'll include links to uh, learn more about both those in the show notes too. Excellent. Um, probably a lot more than we could talk about in, in mm -hmm. the time that we have and, and all the great work you do, but we'll get into it a little more and uh, include links in the, those show notes as well. So. Uh, one more thing from the catechism, uh, one means of support for people with same-sex attraction it mentions, mentions is disinterested friendship. 
Mm-hmm. What is disinterested friendship? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean uninterested, right? That's, I think people get confused with that a lot. It doesn't mean apathetic or, um, you know, nothing bothers me or gets to me, right? Chastity in general is not waging a cold war against our emotional life, mm-hmm. right? So, so a disinterested friendship can, is very uh, deep and, and loving and, you know, emotional, just like any other real friendship would be. I think one way to understand it is to look at other places that the catechism uses the word disinterested. And a lot of times it's in the context of the relationship between parents and children. Um, what they mean is, what they say is that the disinterested love there means that parents certainly deeply, deeply love their children, let them be themselves, let them, um, you know, explore and create, take their emotional life seriously, but also are not afraid to set boundaries and to discipline when necessary, to set a good example, to, you know, to say what needs to be said. So I think when we're talking about disinterested friendship, we're thinking of those friends who tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear, right? Friends who are willing to take the risk of saying something you're not going to like, and maybe you'll walk away from for a while, but they say it out of love, right? Not to hurt you. Um, And so, you know, it's funny in marriage, complementary and procreativity, provide that salutary challenge that makes us more other-centered. I think a disinterested friendship also uh, provides a salutary challenge because there's no vow in friendship, right? And we're just trusting each other to get along and keep walking together. And so, you know, if if I'm in a disinterested friendship, I'm willing to to say what needs to be said um, and to pay the price if the other person can't handle it. Right, um, because there's not a vow, it's a salutary challenge. There's no guarantee. No. We have to every day decide to stay friends. Um, now the problem is today people want a guarantee, and so they're not looking to be real friends, um, but they still want that guarantee. And sex feels like a guarantee. So, you know, rather than get to know each other, people just jump into bed on the first date, and then it's neither disinterested or helpful. And yeah, they they miss out on the salutary challenges in both both sides of things. So absolutely. Well, thank you for that. A uh, couple somewhat current event type questions. This mm-hmm. is obviously in public discourse all the time, these, these issues we're talking about. I'm going to go back to 2020 when Pope Francis talked, uh, had the whole talk about same-sex civil unions, and, and it appeared to endorse those. Um, the Vatican comes out, it says, taken out of context. What, mm-hmm. What's the church's stance on same-sex civil unions? Just to well, the church set is, very, the record straight. is very clear um, in... Uh, a document that came out, I think, in 2003 from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, that, you know, the uh, so law uh, is a formator, I guess is how they would say it. Sure. That, you know, and all the more so when people aren't connected with faith, that we assume that if something's legal in a civilized society, then it must be moral. I mean, you see that this is true with the abortion question, right? Um, and so that we always have the responsibility to have just laws that are upholding uh, moral realities. Okay, so um, any kind of um, concession to unions that are based on um, sexual attraction and exclusivity and um, a sexual relationship, like those, all are things that are more properly called, you know, the the elements of marriage, right? And the reason that the that the government has an interest in licensing, if you will, and recording marriages is because there's, um, you know, their spouses have obligations to each other and certainly to their children, right? Um, but a, sec- a relationship, even a, a, a permanent 
exclusive sexual relationship between two people of the same sex is not the same thing as marriage as we understand it, as we've always understood it. And so I think it's, we're kind of past that question in a lot of parts of the world where we just go to, you know, redefining marriage as not involving complementary procreativity, um, but, but in involving a permanent sexual relationship that's endorsed by the state. So the church is opposed to all of that, to kind of re, reordering relationships so that they, they take the place of what we understand as marriage. Now, to my understanding, when the Pope gave the original interview that was, um, that was used in that documentary, right? Um, first of all, the documentary maker, when they did the interview, cut that part of it out because the Pope wasn't really ready for the question but, and told the Vatican they were cutting it out. But then when they made the documentary, put it back in. Okay, so not fair, first of all. Right. And to my understanding, the, when the Holy Father was talking about that, he wasn't talking about it as a, as a current um, decision or suggestion. He was relating a story from when he was Archbishop of Buenos Aires and when there was a debate in the parliament or in the parliament or house of delegates or I forget what the, what the government of, of um, Argentina calls it. Anyway, in the legislature. Um, and at the time, the legislature was divided between redefining marriage and you know, giving a, a union that was short of marriage, but still would allow people to inherit from one another, uh, to be each other's legal guardian and healthcare proxy, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think I'm getting this right, that the Pope, when he gave that interview, was saying, when I was in Buenos Aires, and there was a threat that people would, that, that the legislature would redefine marriage, I suggested that, well, if what you really want is to protect people's rights to choose who's going to take care of them, well, then there could be this opportunity for a civil union, right? Um, but he, I think in, at the time he said, um, but that's, that shouldn't be, from a Catholic perspective, we're not talking about that the, the, the assumption would be that that's a sexual union, right? It's people who want to look out for one another. And then they conflated that with something that the Pope said about being accepted by one's family. You know, they said everyone has a right to be in a family. And what he meant, what he was talking about, my understanding is um, that parents shouldn't reject their children because they experience same-sex attractions. Right. But in the context that they cut and pasted it, it made it sound like uh, people have a right to form a family as a same-sex couple. So you can see it was all very manipulated. And, and you know, the Pope knows that you know, the doctrine of the church is what it is. And the Pope also knows how to change a doctrine of the church. Um, and, you know, a, a, an interview to one reporter ain't it, right? Like he, That's if right. He, if he wanted to change the teaching, he knows how to do it. And he has power to a certain extent to do it. And he didn't do it. Sure. Uh, speaking of, of changing teaching as part of your work, you, you've reached out publicly to church leaders on multiple occasions just to reinforce the church's teaching on same-sex attraction, transgenderism, and the like. And... Um, this even includes a recent open letter to a pair of European cardinals who, and this is according to the Catholic News Agency, have advocated publicly for the church to change its teaching on homosexuality. Uh, what's your message and your approach when, when you do this? I'm sure it's the most fun part of your job. Well, it, it wasn't not fun. Um, <laughs> you know, because the question is always, well, how do, you, how do you help someone to see that what they're doing is not good for them or anybody else. That's right. right? 
Um, and I think, first of all, it's important not to impugn people's motives, right? I think both Cardinal Reinhard Marx and Cardinal uh, Jean-Claude Hollerich um, both said what they said, at least in part, because they don't want to offend people. They want to help people, even people who are identifying as LGBT, to find their place in the church. Um, but they went, uh, went too far. Father, uh, Cardinal Hollerich said that the, the scientific and sociological reasons behind the church's teaching are no longer correct. And that that's why we have to uh, change the way that the church teaches on this. Cardinal Marx said, uh, the catechism is not set in stone and one may doubt what it says. Uh, there are certain questions of, sexual, of morality that are not settled at the same level as questions of sexual morality. Um, there are certain teachings that we can develop as we start to understand things better scientifically or whatever. But when you know, we're talking about sexuality, uh, it's written into the nature of the human body, as we've said a number of times already today. And human nature doesn't change. Human right. bodies don't change, right? And so the way that the catechism presents the teaching is based on sacred scripture and consistently taught by the, by the tradition of the church, I think has to mean that it's an exercise of the ordinary universal magisterium and therefore a definitive and an infallible teaching on faith and morals, which is also in harmony with um, the nature of the human person and our bodies, which have sexual identity. Um, so it can't change. And so it, for a person who, for anybody to say that it should change or could change, I think they're raising false hopes. Now, when it comes to a cleric, deacon, priest, bishop, archbishop, cardinal, all of us, before we were ordained, uh, took oaths of fidelity. We professed our faith with the creed. We also said that in, in, in regard to definitive teachings of the church on faith and morals, and especially these ones that are based on scripture and tradition, um, that we, we swore and we called on God to witness our oath and we put our hands on the page of the gospel when we made our oath, we swore that um, we would hold fast to the teaching, we would shun teachings that are contrary to it, and we would teach it faithfully. Cardinal Marx took that oath multiple times. Cardinal Hollerich took that oath multiple times. And you know, as I said in my letter, Your Eminence, please, I beg you, be faithful to your oath. Because if, if they were to break that oath and start teaching the opposite, first of all, I think they harm people who are identifying as gay and lesbian or LGBT by raising false hopes. And then every time the church has to say, I'm sorry, we can't actually change the teaching, then those people feel further marginalized. Sure. They're hurting people who are trying to live chastely because they feel unsupported by the church. They're living, they're living that way often at a great personal sacrifice. And so, you know, they say to me, does, does Cardinal Marx not think we need to do this? Does anybody care? Um, they, they create a scandal in the world and make it look like, you know, we're so divided um, and, you know, that things can't be true. I mean, Jesus said at the Last Supper, he prayed that they may all be one so that the world may believe that God's, the Father sent the Son. Um, and then, frankly, and I, you know, it's, I say this with humility and respect, but also with concern, um, to break an oath is a grave sin. It's called perjury. Um, we've made that promise calling on God as our witness, right? And so if a person deliberately breaks an oath, then he's guilty of a grave sin. And if he deliberately persists in a grave sin, then that puts eternal salvation at risk. So, you know, there's all, for all those reasons, you know, my, my, um, my plea was really just be faithful to the oath that each of us took when we became priests and, and you know, in their case, bishops and cardinals. Sure. Yeah. Sure, sure. 
transgenderism specifically. There's different forms transgenderism can take. But how does the church approach that topic specifically? Well, I think we go back to the reality that male and female, he created us. Um, And we believe that our sexual identity is a gift from God um, that is part of us from the moment that we begin to exist, right? Um, Our parents, with God's help, create our bodies, and God creates our soul, puts our soul into our body. And from the first moment that we are who we are, our soul is is having influence on our body, and our body is having an influence on our soul, right? So first of all, there's not, there aren't male souls and female souls. Our souls and our, the parts of our soul, like our intellect and our personality, they all develop because we're in male or female bodies, right? Um, and so, um, you know, if we lose sight of that reality uh, and think that, you know, my real self is my inner self and my body is just this meat machine that I use to get around in the world, um, you know, and that maybe I'm, I'm the, my, my soul's in the wrong body. Well, then if I'm free, I can just change my body to make it look however I want it to. But I think the way that the church can really help, which was your original question, is um, to draw people back to that, to seeing sexual identity as a blessing and a gift, right? Sure. The catechism says everyone should acknowledge and accept his or her sexual identity. Um, and there are innumerable ways that can lead to a person feeling disconnected with their body, um, ashamed or afraid of their bodies, where they feel like, uh, I don't know what the world is expecting of me because I'm male or female. I don't know if I can fit that role. I don't know if I want to fit that role, etc. Um, we have to approach that, again, with, with respect and sensitivity and great compassion. But the way to help somebody is not to say, well, yeah, if you're uncomfortable, then let's just take your healthy body and make it unhealthy by, by uh, stopping natural processes or cutting out healthy flesh. Um, the way to help is to say, tell me, what, tell me your story. Tell me what this feels like. Tell me why it is that you have these questions or feel this discordance, this disconnection between body and soul. And let's see if, you know, kind of trying to understand that together, that we can get to a place where you can at least begin to appreciate and accept this gift that God gave you when he gave you your body and your soul. Is that the ideal state? So like the ideal state of, of living, of happiness for a person with same-sex attraction is living chastely. Uh-huh. What's the ideal state for a person who identifies as transgender? Is it accepting, acceptance? Yeah, yeah, accepting, acknowledging and accepting their God-given sexual identity. You know, and people are at different points in what they've done even to this point, right? So a person who's already, you know, taken cross-sex hormones or had surgery, um, you know, what they can do now is going to be, you know, I mean, that you have to kind of help them on a case-by-case basis, right? Um, but I think ultimately it's, you know, being the person that God created you to be. I think fundamental to our vocation is the fact that every man could be a father and every woman could be a mother. And so God never gives a vocation without giving the gifts that we need to live it out. So there's something really fundamental about masculinity that is fatherly. And so if we want to know how men are created to love, it's as a father loves, you know, laying down your life to protect the people that are under your care. And if we want to know uh, what feminine love is, it's, mo- it's motherly love, uh, making a total gift of oneself to nurture and, and help a person who doesn't look like a person and is totally dependent to grow and to flourish. Um, so I think if people are, if they're 
mutilating, frankly, their bodies, you know, in various ways in order to be more comfortable in relationships. And they're going to try to, you know, having been given a body that's male and, you know, having grown up in that body and so that shapes the soul as well, they're now going to try to love as a woman would love, right? Or, and I don't know how they know how to do that, right? Um, it's always going to be contradictory to, to what their heart wants and what their natural gifts will be and how they're made and called to love. Sure. It's obviously a process, like you said, of, mm-hmm. of conversation and, and, sure. and dialogue to, to get to that point. We don't for just sure. flip the switch and understand that. No, that's for what, sure. That's the work you do. So let's role play a little bit and then okay. we'll get you out of here. I come to you. Uh, maybe I'm your, your parishioner or someone who's close to you. And Father, I'm gay. Mm-hmm. What's the first thing out of your mouth? Thank you for sharing that with me. I know it wasn't easy, Um, no matter how well we know each other. I know it wasn't easy to tell me that. And I really appreciate the fact that you trust me with that. I'm going to do what I can not to betray that trust. Now, I know you're waiting for me to say what I think. And we can talk about that a little bit, but I don't know what this is like for you. And I want to hear that first, right? You've been thinking about this for a long time. I I, I just heard about it. So I don't want to say too much. I want to listen more than I say today. But I will say... I know that it's an it's a important fact of your life right now, and I can imagine that it's probably the central thing that you're thinking about. I certainly don't think it's the only important thing about you, and if I'm honest, I, I don't think it's the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is that you're created by God in His image and likeness, called to relationship, you have a vocation, etc. So I want to know who you are. You know, I, we can talk about this if you want right now, or we can talk about it some other time. Um, but you know, more so than what your desires are, what your, you know, personal life is like. I want to know, how does it feel to be you? You know, what do you, uh, what do you think your future holds? You know, what's, what's it like to grow up in your family and with your friends? You know, who do you love and who loves you? And what do you think of God? And what do you think God thinks about you? And all those things. So, yeah, I think, you know, I try to always focus on three main things. I love you. I believe God has a plan for your life. And I want to hear your story. And within that context, I think we, we accompany people, as Pope Francis would say, starting from their situation. We accompany them with mercy and respect. Um, I think it's, it's the best place to, to start, not only to understand the other person, but to help them perhaps to understand themselves even better. Sure. Is it a similar, same reaction if someone says they're, they're identifying as transgender? Are there some nuances you know, I there? Haven't, I haven't had too, too many of experiences yeah. of that um, personally so far. I, I think so. I think, you know, it would start with, tell me what this experience is like for yeah. you, you know? And I have, there are a couple of people that I've spoken to, you know, and you get this, I got the sense that, you know, it's, there's really kind of big questions that we would need to kind of think about first before, you know, we're going to talk about medicine or surgery or interventions. Like, tell me what this is like. I, it's not my experience, obviously. What are you thinking? What, how does this feel? And let's talk about that. Yeah. yeah. All about conversation, mm-hmm. dialogue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you coach parents to, to say or do if their kid comes to them and, and comes out? Yeah, first of all, take a deep breath and calm down, <laughs> right? I mean, a lot of times, uh, you know, people, parents are coming with this kind of emergency room mentality, which is something's wrong, how do I fix it? And not for bad reasons. I mean, parents, uh, they want their children to be safe and happy, you know, and they also have expectations for what their family's going to look like. And all of a sudden, all those things come crashing down, and it's easy for parents to, to panic. Um, so I think really encouraging them to listen a lot more than they speak, sure. at least at first. 
um, to really lean on one another if they're married, um, you know, to to give each other permission to say what's wh how, what it feels like and how they hurt. You know, it's not something that they can say necessarily to their loved one, right? But they can say it to their spouse. And I mean, that's why they come to encourage to be able to say those things as well. And then, you know, I think it's so important to, to ask them to try not to be afraid of this situation or afraid of their child, you know, and to keep things as normal as possible. This may not be <clears throat> exactly what the son or daughter is looking for, right? Uh, they may be looking for the parents, like either say that you accept everything about this or we're not going to have a relationship. And sometimes, I mean, the only person's reaction that you can control is your own. So sometimes all you can say is, I really wish that wasn't your decision, but I understand and I didn't, I don't want to make you upset, but I'm saying, I, I also won't lie to you. Um, and I hope that someday we can talk about this again, you know. But if, if they're not taking it to that extreme, then to just keep things as normal as possible. They're still the same son or daughter that they were the day before you found out about all this, right? And so they still need the same love from their parents. Um, when it comes to practical things, I think you know, we try and keep, keep it about the action or the decision, not about the person. So to make sure that their children know that they are loved and not in the sense of like, well, when you fix this, I'll be able to love you again, right? But you know, I want to know what's going on. Tell, every, you can tell me anything. If they have a partner, it's not a sin to get to know that person, right? To show that person respect. In fact, it can be a very good idea. Somebody who cares about your son or daughter very much. You know, but when it comes to like visiting, you know, for a holiday, well, make it about the decision. You know, you're very welcome. Uh, you're, this person that means so much to you is also welcome. Um, where you sleep is up to you, right? What I can give you for free is you can sleep in your old room and they can sleep in the guest room. If you prefer not to do that, well, there's a hotel a couple miles and you, you make money now, you can, you can do that. Come over in the morning, stay all day. We won't make you feel bad for, for doing that. But, um, but yeah, that's what we can offer. And if there are little kids in the family, you know, to say, while you're here, please don't, we'd ask you just not to say or do anything that would raise a question for one of these little ones that they're not old enough to get the whole answer to, right? Respect their innocence and our desire to teach them. Um, and uh, there's one more thing I was, I was going to say, but it went out of my head. So, yeah. <laughs> Great practical advice. Yeah. How about a friend or a sibling? Someone comes to, to me, thing. let's say, yeah. you know, pretty similar. similar yeah, I think process, so. Right? And, and to, again, to listen, um, to realize like we're not, they're not necessarily looking to us for the same kind of uh, approval or evaluation, right? Because uh, we're not in that kind of relationship. But just, again, to keep it as normal as possible. I think to resist that desire, you know, that the other person might have that you take sides, especially if, you're, if the parents are not accepting, they might look to, for you to be on their side and say, hey, look, your relationship with mom and dad is, it is what it is. It's for you guys. And our relationship is between us. And, you know, this is what I believe, not because mom and dad make me think this way, but this is what I believe. Um, and just to keep it as, as low-key and normal as possible. Awesome. One more and we'll get you out of here. Mm -hmm. Tell me a good story you've come across in your work recently. You know, there's, there's so many of them, I'm sure, but mm -hmm. of someone who's, who's benefited from courage and who's living, living the life that, mm -hmm. that God's meant for them to live, mm -hmm. as, as we've talked about today. And, and um. Yeah, so there's there's a, a, a young man that I've gotten to know, um, I guess it was probably about five years ago. His mother actually reached out to me and said, uh, 
you know, I think my son needs to talk to you. I said, well, fine, but he's a grown up. And, you know, if, if he wants to talk to me, then give him my contact information. And took a few months and then he reached out. And so we started talking and um, he was living abroad at the time. And so um, he, uh, we hadn't, I, we were talking regularly for about four years before we actually met in person. Um, you know, we would talk on Skype and now on Zoom. Um, and when I first met him, he was carrying a lot of guilt and shame. He was, you know, involved uh, in basically the hookup culture. Um, you know, there was a time when um, when he was living with somebody, right, and was very ashamed to talk to me about it, you know. Um, and, you know, then he moved back home and um, started, you know, it was funny, we had a conversation when he got home. He said, well, I just don't know what to do. Like, he works remotely, so he can work really from anywhere in the world. And he said, I just don't have any structure to my time or my day. I said, well, is there mass at your parish? Is there adoration? And he started going to adoration and making a daily examination during a holy hour every day. And, you know, he still struggles with chastity in terms of pornography, but, um, you know, he hasn't, he's kind of left the hookup culture and he's really getting very good at discerning. He, he is pursuing uh, a dream that he had in terms of a career because he feels called to it by the Lord. And um, yeah, he says, I'm really very proud of him. You know, he's still experiencing attraction to the same sex. I don't think he's even thinking about, you know, getting married, uh, meeting another, meeting a woman and, and, you know, kind of feeling that way about her. Who knows, right? He's still young. Um, but he's, he's got, I think, by being open to God's invitation, you know, he has found a real connection with the Lord that is having a, a positive impact on his life. So, yeah, I, I love him very much. I'm very, very proud of him. Um, and it's not me that did all that. It's him cooperating with God's grace. But it's real privilege for me to be a witness to that and to share that journey with him. So good. Father, you've been more than generous with your time today, and we, we really appreciate it. Um, we will, again, link to some more info on courage and encourage in the show notes. We'll throw some links in uh, to the pieces of the catechism that we talked about today, and then a couple of the other church documents that were referenced as well for, for further reading for folks. But um, thank you so much for your time. My we pleasure. really, really appreciate Thanks for the it. Invitation. Thank you, too, for joining us on this edition of the Joyful Catholic Leaders Show. Be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts and follow both the St. Paul Seminary and St. John Vianney College Seminary on social media and at semsp.org. Just a reminder, new episodes drop every month on the first Friday of the month in honor of Our Lady of Fatima and the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus. As always, thanks for listening and God bless.